So I have a question that I want us to consider this morning, and I, I want you to answer, answer it to yourself, of course. Don't, don't shout it out loud. But, but I want you to be honest, and here's the question. Have you ever had the bottom drop out of your life and wondered where was God when you needed him? Yes. Have you ever had that happen to anyone? Yes. And, and, and before you answer too quickly, Miss Joni. I want to share some insights with you from a few of the great men of the Old Testament who were really asking themselves the same question. Listen, for instance, to the words of Moses. In Exodus, Exodus chapter 5, it says, When Moses went back to the Lord and protested, he said, Why have you brought all this trouble on your own people, Lord? Why did you send me? That doesn't sound like the words of someone who is entirely satisfied with God in that moment, does it? Moses was disappointed. We have the words of Asaph in Psalm 77 that convey an even deeper disappointment. He wrote, I cry out. To God, yes, I shout, oh, that God would listen to me. When I was in deep trouble, I searched for the Lord. All night long, I prayed with hands lifted toward heaven, but my soul was not comforted. I think of God, and I moan, overwhelmed with longing for his help. Or take, for instance, the words of, of Jonah in Jonah chapter 4. It relates to us. This, this change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That's why I ran away to Tarsish. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? And yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. And so in this case, to say that Jonah was upset with God would be an understatement. Jonah wasn't just upset, he was flat out angry with God. Angry to the point that he would just assume that God take his life and leave him that upset. And this morning, our, our lectionary text for the day is going to give us an up-close, uh, first-hand, personal look at, at two more men, two traveling companions, who are taking leaden steps away from uh, the scene of what on the surface appeared to them to be the collapse of their highest aspirations uh, and the end of all of their hopes and their dreams. And we're going to be going, uh, we're taking a break, remember, from our, our long look through the Gospel of Matthew during this Easter tide season. And we're going to jump into the end of Luke. So I hope you have your Bibles with you. Uh, even though it's uh, on the screen, it's important to read it in front of you. So Luke uh, chapter 24, and I'm going to be reading to you verses 13 to 27. So Luke 24, 13 to 27. And listen for the voice of the Spirit. And we're told that very day... Uh, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, Answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. 
Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks be to God. God, our Father, we thank you for this faithful record of the things that your son did and said after his resurrection. And we ask, Lord, that you would write these things on our hearts. We ask you that you would send us your Holy Spirit to enlighten us, to take this message, Lord, and, uh, and these words that we have, have heard and read, uh, and fill us with them, Father, because we want to see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So it was early that Sunday morning as Cleopas and his, his friend uh, passed through Jerusalem's western gate heading toward Emmaus. And even a casual observer of their conversation could tell by their body language that their, their conversation with each other was intense. And they were discussing what had happened over the past few days that Jesus, their rabbi, the one that they believed was the Messiah, the, the Christ, the Savior, the promised one sent to deliver his people from the wrath of God for their sins, had been taken by the religious leaders, put through a mock trial shuffled off to Pontius Pilate, who they coerced into executing him by putting him to death on a cross. And the clear implication of the text is that these men were discussing the scriptures that they knew from the temple and from the synagogue about a Savior, and they're comparing them to their knowledge of Jesus and what had happened to him. And in their minds, things just weren't seeming to add up. And as they're walking and, and, and talking, a stranger walks up alongside of them, and the stranger greets them. He falls in to step with them, and he interrupts them, really, is basically what he does. And he says, hey, fellas, what are you talking about? The two men stop in their tracks, and they look at each other. They look at Jesus, who they've been prevented from recognizing, and, and, and he asks them, why, why do you guys look so depressed? The two men give this interloper a sideways glance as they're trying to size up what kind of a fellow had joined their company, and they're dumbfounded because the execution of the popular prophet from Nazareth was just about the only thing people were talking about in Jerusalem that weekend as folks began to pack up for their trip home from the Passover festivities. And so partly in, in frustration and maybe some degree of sarcasm, the men respond by asking this stranger if he were the only visitor to Jerusalem that didn't know what had happened there over the weekend. Which, of course, the delightful irony being that the one to whom they asked the question was the only one that really truly intimately did know what had happened. And this is the part of the story where I always, I, I kind of stop and wonder to myself, why didn't Jesus just show him his nail-scarred hands and his spear-gouged side or his thorn-scraped forehead? Why, why didn't he just say, guys, it's me. I, I'm back. I'm, I'm here. Cheer up. I mean, he did that for the disciples in the upper room, right? He did that for the women, but that wasn't God's plan for this encounter. And that's actually good news for us. 
And, but I'll get back to that. So just, just keep that thought in your mind for a minute. But so now as these three men stand there uh, on the dusty Emmaus Road looking at each other, our Lord does one of the things that our Lord does best, and that's answer a question with another question. And so he asks Cleopas and his traveling companions, uh, what things have been happening? Now the text doesn't tell us which one spoke first, but I'll bet you they both talked at once. And the whole story just spilled out. The, the whole story of their hopes and their dreams and their plans that they had pinned to their Rabbi Yeshua. Uh, and they told him about the powerful miracles he had performed and the depths of his teaching and how everything that he had done seemed to fit with everything they were expecting from the anointed one that God had promised to send to reclaim the throne of David and to restore the glory of Israel. But then last Friday came. And that's where the wheels came off. That's, that's where everything changed. That's where their plans came apart at the seams and the bottom dropped out and their world went literally and figuratively dark. And they didn't understand what had happened. And they're asking themselves, where was God when the cross was erected? Where was God when his prophet was murdered? Where was God when the cultural elite and the foreign conquerors continued to beat the people down anytime they felt like it? And maybe most importantly, where was God when they needed him? Because everything they had been waiting and longing and hoping for had all been sealed up in a stone-cold tomb. But then, and they almost hesitated to add this, that earlier today, some of the women that they knew, women who had followed and cared for their master too, had gone to anoint his body and to see to its proper and dignified burial, and they found instead that it was gone, that he, he was gone. But what could it mean? Where had the body gone? Who, who would take it? In fact, a better question is who would want it? And how would they ever figure out all the answers to all those questions? But there had to be answers, right? But you know, folks, those are some of the same issues that people are still struggling with today. Because, you know, 21st century America is very much like first century Mediterranean Israel. You know, we hear skeptics say all the time, well, you know, if Jesus' body was gone, then someone stole it. Or, or, or someone moved it. And, and I've even heard someone say this. I've had someone say uh, that maybe Jesus just swooned in the tomb from the torture of the cross. And the, the coolness of that tomb somehow revived him and he was able to break out. Kind of crazy, but people say that. And, and you know, I mean, it's, you know, people will say, well, maybe uh, if the body was gone, what does that really mean to me? Because admittedly, it is quite a leap from a missing body to mankind's Messiah. It is rather a stretch to say that a vacant tomb just automatically equals a victorious Savior. Or that a rolled back stone means that he rose from the dead. And, and those, those things are, are valid arguments, on the surface at least. But the truth is, in all honesty, that they either demonstrate a naive view of authentic Christianity or worse, a stubborn unwillingness to examine the evidence for our faith. Because, brothers and sisters, there is so much more to it than that. And so these two men now having spilled their story, uh, Cleopas and his friend just kind of start out walking again, maybe five paces or so until their roadside stranger said to them the last thing they expected from this man out of nowhere. And Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. 
Cleopas looks over at the stranger, kind of confused, who looks right back at him in the eyes and says, wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all of these things before entering his glory? So, so guys, this is not baby Jesus meek and mild today on the road, right? This is not being Jesus just a little exasperated with them. No, Jesus is angry with them for not understanding. For not understanding things which ought to have been clear to them as professed believers in the word and in the power of God. In fact, Martin Luther in his commentary on it put it this way. He said, Jesus scolded them for their stupidity. And Jesus is saying, basically, you guys should have understood from Scripture that it was necessary, that it was vital, that it was imperative for the Savior to be put to death before he could return to glory. And now don't mishear me. Jesus is not saying that every single thing in the Bible is easy to understand. Uh, admittedly, there are some parts of Scripture that are easier to understand and some parts that are a little harder. But the truth is, as far as what's necessary for understanding life and salvation, Jesus taught and we believe in what theologians call the perspicuity of Scripture, which is just a fancy way to say that the Bible is a plain book. It's a plain book full of plain answers. And then it's clear. And then it's able to be understood. And what Jesus is saying is that they should have understood that the Savior had to suffer and die and rise just from the Scriptures they already knew. Like even had they just considered Isaiah chapter 53, written to predict Jesus' ministry some 700 years before he was born, if they had spent time considering it, they would have understood exactly what was going to happen and why it had to be this way. So I want to share it with you just real quickly. If you still have your Bibles open, open them back up again to Isaiah 53, which asks the question rhetorically, who's believed our message to whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our back on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we didn't care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and to cause him grief. And the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. Now I ask you, who, who but Jesus could that be describing? Right? And yet looking back now for us, of course, is much easier for us to see. But even then in the first century, a text like that, having been read in synagogues for seven centuries prior to Jesus' birth, should have led them to understand that Jesus had to suffer to save us from the wrath of God for our sins but they didn't get it. Or maybe I could say they possibly didn't want it. Because you see, they loved all the scriptures about the good things that the Messiah would do for them. They just didn't want to read or accept the parts they didn't like. And so they contented themselves with a superficial, self-serving understanding of God's word. And then they wondered why their world seemed to be falling apart all around them. And the truth is, unfortunately, that still happens to us all of the time. And admittedly, I'm just as guilty as anybody. Because, guys, you know, I work with Scripture all week long. 
all week to prepare for Bible study and Sunday school and the Sunday sermon, but that's not the same as getting alone with God and asking him to speak to me from his word and showing me what he wants from me. And that's why all of us, me included, need to not only read our Bibles regularly, but we need to spend time thinking about what it means and praying to God to give us direction. And the good news is, church, those are the kind of prayers that God will always answer. Uh, he won't leave us lost. Just like Jesus didn't leave those men lost on the road to Emmaus. And so Luke goes on to tell us, he said, Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets from all of Scripture, the things concerning himself. And I said the other night in Bible study, wouldn't I, wouldn't I have given the world to be in on that Bible study, right? Can you imagine going through that Bible study with Jesus? And then for the next two hours, our Lord walked with Cleopas and his friend through the entire scriptures and explained all the references to Christ. And as he did, the fire of their faith that had died out on Golgotha came back to life and burned with a familiar hope, with a hope that Jesus was indeed the Christ, with a hope that it could really be true, that Jesus was resurrected. And so Jesus began with Genesis 1-1, and he, he took them from there, and as they walked, Jesus unwound that scarlet thread of the great salvation narrative that travels through every book of the Old Testament. And he showed them how everything in the scriptures was about Christ, how everything in all those scriptures pointed to Jesus and to his gospel. And church, as you and I grow in the spirit, you'll begin to know and to actively notice those things for yourself. And if you don't, you need to ask yourself why. Because if the word of God is rightly preached to us or if we read and study and pray over the word of God, something should happen to us. And if it doesn't, you may want to ask yourself why it doesn't. You may want to ask yourself, why do I read scripture and get nothing out of it? Why do I sit under the reading and the preaching of the gospel in a fog and get lost in my own thoughts until the benediction comes? Because, you know, as I've told you guys before, it's been said, a genuine encounter with Jesus Christ in his word is like being hit by a dump truck. Uh, you can never be the same again after that. Right? Uh, and the same thing was true for that man in the text today. Because when they saw Jesus as the purpose and the theme of all of Scripture, they felt like they had been set on fire by this man who, who made sense so beautifully of everything that had happened to them. And, and that's not the end of their story. It actually continues, uh, and this wasn't part of our primary reading, but it continues by this time they were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey. And Jesus acted as if he were going on, but they begged him, stay for the night with us since it's getting late. So he went home with them. And as they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. And then he broke it. And he gave it to them. And suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. And they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? you know, as they walked, those seven miles of well-worn road flew by before they finally reached Emmaus. Jesus started to walk on, but they invited him to stay for dinner, and he accepted their invitation. And as they sat down to eat, Jesus became the host of the table. And as he took bread in his hands and he gave thanks to the Father for it, uh, whether it was the way that he broke the bread that perhaps reminded them of a meal they had shared before, or whether as he did so, they suddenly noticed the wounds in his hands. Their eyes were opened by the Holy Spirit and they suddenly understood God's eternal presence with them and in everything that had taken place that weekend through the person and the work of Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And remember I told you earlier, 
that their experience in not initially recognizing Jesus was good news for us, and here's why. Because, you know, in this encounter on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is intentionally pointing out that before he opened their physical eyes, that he opened the eyes of their heart by the Spirit. And he did it through those two great pillars of our faith that he's left behind for us as his church, and that's the Word and the sacraments. Right? See, that's why these two men were kept from recognizing Jesus, and I think the clue is in verse 25. Remember when Jesus called them foolish because they had been slow of heart to believe the Scriptures, but you see, their outward inability to recognize Jesus mirrored their inward unbelief of what the Scriptures revealed about him. So why did Jesus veil himself in that way? Because of the whole testimony of Scripture makes clear it was and still is of utmost importance that those two men and all of us 21 centuries later walk by faith and not by sight. You see, Jesus knew that between his resurrection and the full establishment of his coming kingdom, we'd be in the church age. That's the era we're living in right now, and he knew that his ascension was coming. And that meant these two men and all the other witnesses to the resurrection and every generation of believers from then on wouldn't have access to Christ's physical bodily presence for our evidence of the resurrection or for our instruction or for our reassurance. And they'd have to rely on what Hebrews 4.12 calls his living and active word to enlighten our path. We'd have to rely on the Holy Spirit to actualize his real presence at the table. And so this episode we've been reading shows us that God's will and intention in this post-resurrection and ascension world that we live in is that Jesus would be clearly seen through his inerrant word and through our participation in the, in the sacraments. Through the living testimony of men and women whose hearts and eyes have been opened through those ordinary means of grace, working in and through us, no matter what the world throws at us, no matter where we find ourselves on the road of life. Which brings me right back to where we started our journey, and I ask you the question about whether you'd ever had the bottom drop out of your life and wondered where God might be hiding when you need Him. We have those times when we're tempted to doubt His Word and to lose our faith. Those times when God ordains things to happen contrary to our expectations, like happened to these two men. Well, it turns out the testimony of our reading today is that not being able to physically see Jesus doesn't mean he's not walking right here with us. In fact, he's been here the whole time. And then we realize that he's not only been the one watching over us, but we've been the one that's lost sight of him. And so today, as we look past the resurrection and toward Pentecost, let us seek to live lives centered on the word of God and on the gospel of Christ. Trusting not in our, our own human sight or our own ideas about what God should or shouldn't be doing, but relying on his intervention through word and through sacrament to cleanse us so that we can believe the one saving message and to make us quick to recognize our Savior waiting around every turn, on every path, around every corner, constantly moving us from confusion to confidence in Jesus, our Savior. So are you willing to walk with him today? Don't be foolish and slow of heart. Brothers and sisters, repent and believe the gospel. Come and make a public confession of your faith. Be baptized for the remission of your sins and listen for the voice of the Spirit as we pray. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you that even though there are, there are times in our lives and in our pathways that we can't see you, we thank you, Lord, that you're always beside us. We thank you, Lord, that you never leave us or forsake us. 
Uh, and even though we get our eyes off of you so many times, Lord, you never lose sight of us. So we ask you to be with us this week as we go back to our neighborhoods and to our homes. Help us, Father, to share this message of, of truth and peace, uh, of redemption. And Father, I ask if there's even one among us that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, uh, that you would surprise them by the reality of your presence, that you would uh, open their eyes even as you did for those men at the table, uh, and help them, Father, to see you and submit to your gospel. And Father, we ask that you would just uh, continue to walk in and with and through us this week in Jesus' name. Amen.